name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. On our Facebook page, I put a five-minute video testimony of Adrian Rogers. And Adrian uh, is now uh, with the Lord. But anyway, he, um, when he was like 17 years old, he was at a camp meeting. He's, he's a famous pastor. Like I said, he's, he's now deceased. But he was, he was 17 years old, not a pastor. Just, but God got a hold of him. And one of the things at this meeting was Adrian walked away saying, I want to share my faith. I'm going to share my faith. And in this little testimony I put on our Facebook page, I really hope you'll go and watch it. But he talks about how he was at the, I think at the beach or on the boardwalk or something. He didn't have a shirt on. He had a short pants on. He's 17 years old or so. And this older fella, you know, asked him for something. And, you know, he doesn't, he, he can't really talk to him. He doesn't really have what he needs or whatever. He's walking away. And God says, Adrian, go back and talk to that guy about me. And uh, Adrian starts arguing with the Lord. Well, Lord, I'm only 17. I'm just a boy, and he's a man. And God, I just have short pants on, and on and on and on it went. This was a different generation, right? So, but the, but God kept saying, "But Adrian, you promised. But you promised." And uh, I loved what he said. He said, I, "I didn't hear an audible voice. It was louder than an audible voice." But anyway, he turned around and went back, and he he asked the he asked the older gentleman. He said. You know, do, do you, I think he asked him, are you a Christian or do you know Christ? And the old man immediately starts to cry and says, no, I don't, but I'd like to. And, and Adrian says, if I had a Bible, I'd take you. And the old man says, I got a Bible. And he pulls the Gideon Bible out of his bag. And Adrian opens it, shares with him a John 3.16. He said, the only verse I knew. And that man, that old man, he said, uh, he, he led him to the Lord to pray a prayer of receiving Christ. And he said, he's crying, the old man's crying, and then he walks away. And when he's walking away, the old man calls him back. And he says, young man, he said, you know, in all my years, you're the first person to ever talk to me about my soul. And, uh, and, and Adrian was basically challenging us to be involved in sharing our faith. You know, I had two opportunities this week to, that were just, I felt like got appointments. I took one of them. I walked away from the other one. I tell you my failures because I really want you to understand, I recognize that it's not always easy to walk into that open door, even though it's open right before us. Uh, but in one of them, I did walk through the door. It turns out that the man was a brother in the Lord, and we had a great conversation about Jesus. But I really want to challenge us I want to remind us, challenge us that, you know, we are God's uh, feet and hands and mouthpiece uh, on, on the planet. I mean, we're to be telling people about Jesus. I mean, he's been, I mean, he's so good, isn't he? The Lord Jesus came and bore our death so that we could rise again. And, and he's good to us today. Even though some of us are struggling, we have suffering, you know, God is still good. Jesus is still good. And, and it really, it falls upon us to tell people about Jesus, Tonight we have an opportunity if you want to join uh, Michael and myself or going and some others. But we'd love to have you go with us to Liberty Baptist tonight where we're going to be challenged on this very subject. So if you happen to have a few hours this evening, we'd love to have you go. It's from 6, uh, 6 to 8.30, I would imagine. And we're going to leave here uh, a bit earlier than that, around 4.30, 4.15, something like that. So anyhow, if you're interested, talk to me after the service and, and we'll, we'll get you going with us. Towards the end of uh, 2018... 
We began a study of the fourth book of the, of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and it carried us through most of 2019. I guess you'll remember that. But when we came to where we are in the book, chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, I stopped that study because I thought it'd be good to come back in the spring, i.e. right now, and pick it back up and carry it through our own celebration, our own remembrance of the Lord's death and resurrection. So that's what we're going to do this morning is we're going to return to the Gospel of John, having finished our series on the King of God last Sunday. So uh, how do I recap over, over a year of study? I really can't do that, but I thought there might be some folks here who weren't with us for some of that. So let me just sort of give you a few general thoughts. The author of the book that we're talking about is John, one of the 12 that Jesus chose to follow with him full time for three years. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. And I've talked about this numerous times, but I believe he did that, not naming himself as John, but I believe he called himself that because that's how he felt, that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. And again, I remember as a young person thinking, how arrogant of John to say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. But in years, I've come to realize that John wasn't trying to say, I'm the only disciple that Jesus loved. He would have said, Jesus loved all of us. But John's heart was that Jesus loved him. And that's how he describes himself as the author of this, of this book. John wrote this letter, he says, towards the end of it. He says, I'm writing this so that people might believe that Jesus is the King, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, by believing in him, you might have eternal life. Now, John's gospel is fundamentally different from the other three. We call the first four books of our New Testament the gospels, the good news, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is different from the other three. We call the other three the synoptics and because they are a synopsis of the life of Jesus. Uh, he, they, all three of those sort of uh, give us a chronology of Jesus' three years of ministry. But John takes a different approach, and he takes the major discourses of Jesus, and he talks about these major teaching times of Jesus, and he puts them in an order for us. There is one primary division in the book. It's between chapter 12 and the remaining chapters. In chapters 1 through 12, we see Jesus in the first three years of his ministry. In John's gospel, beginning in chapter 13, we find ourselves on the last week of Jesus' life, and specifically Specifically, most of those chapters are going to be devoted to the very last day of Jesus' life. John records for us seven miracles of which, around which he builds these teaching times. One of them is the water to wine at the marriage feast in Cana, the very first miracle John records. Then there was the healing of the nobleman's son. Remember that? Jesus said, go home, your, uh, your son is healed. Then there is um, the healing of the man by the sheep gate. The guy who can't get in the water, and Jesus heals him. Fourth, there's walking on water. Fifth, there's the feeding of the 5,000. Sixth, the healing of the man born blind. And then finally, the raising of Lazarus. And each of these stories is like an introduction to a longer teaching time that Jesus gives us. As we return to the book of John this morning, what I want us to, to, where I want us to pick up is we're in the very last night of Jesus' life. And in fact, Jesus has retreated after a very busy last week. He's now retreated to celebrate the Passover with his 12 disciples. You remember they were going to share a meal together, but the evening didn't start off all that great because his disciples start arguing about who's the greatest among them. And you'll remember that Jesus, what he does, he takes off his outer coat and he girds himself up, the Bible says, gets a basin and begins to wash their feet. 
And then he says, hey, what I've done, you go and do uh, likewise. He settles down at the table. He begins to teach them. He dismisses Judas. Remember that? He says, Judas, go and do what you got to do. And Judas leaves. And after Judas leaves, Jesus talks about the new covenant that he's beginning that very night or the very next day in his blood by his death uh, on Calvary. They get up from the table, they leave, and they head to the Kidron Valley. And in the Kidron Valley, they're going to find themselves at the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know if it was on the way to Kidron, on the way to the garden, whether this happens or once they get there, but we find some of the greatest teachings of Jesus in that time between when they leave the room and, and when Jesus is arrested. We find the story or the teaching of, I am the vine, you are the branches. One of the greatest teachings of Jesus. We find this in that time period. We find Jesus' high priestly prayer of John 17 in this time where Jesus prays for his disciples. And you remember, he prays that God will keep them, but he also prays for us. He says, Lord, I'm not just praying for them, but I'm praying for everybody who's going to believe because of them. And he prays, if you'll remember, he prays that we might have this tremendous unity that draws men to himself. Now, after speaking all of these, these wonderful words of life, if you would, and after this, this tremendous prayer, Jesus now faces what he has called all along throughout his ministry, his hour. Several occasions throughout the book of John and throughout the other gospels, Jesus will say something like this, my hour has not yet come. Woman, why do you ask this? My hour has not yet come. But now as we're facing the cross and we're just a few hours away from it, we find Jesus saying, my hour has come. This is John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Later in the same chapter, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. In chapter 13, he says, Jesus know, or John records, excuse me, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, he should depart out of this world to the Father. That's chapter 13, verse 1. In his prayer in 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. So the hour has arrived, and make no mistake, it's not an easy hour, as we'll see, but we find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, in this hour when Jesus prays. And I want to share something from Matthew. Before we actually look at the text from John, I want, us to, I want you to see something from Matthew. This is Matthew 26. Again, that same evening there at Gethsemane. Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, and then return twice more to find them sleeping each time he would return and pray the same thing, let this cup pass. Now I read you that to say this, the hour has now become the cup that Jesus is going to drink. The hour that Jesus kept saying isn't here, isn't here, but now is saying is here. The metaphor changes from the hour to the cup, right? The cup, this cup that he's going to have to drink and it's a bitter cup. It's a cup that uh, doesn't taste very well. My mother-in-law is 92, 93, something like that. And every day she drinks a, a cup of barley juice. 
And if you've never seen barley and in, in what she drinks, I'm telling you, it looks horrible, but she credits it to her long life. And so I wanted to live a long time, and so I drank some barley juice. And I've decided after drinking that that I'm going to die young. <laughs> so we all know what something bitter is, right? And Jesus is saying, now I've got to drink this bitter, bitter cup. Now, John doesn't mention what I just read you from John's gospel. He leaves that out. And again, their gospels are very different, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. He, he leaves that part out. Uh, but his, his account of what happens dovetails with Matthew's and the other gospels. So let's pick up our story in John. We're at chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, "'Who is it that you're seeking?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they answered. "'I am he,' he told them." Judas, who betrayed them, also was standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of them you have given me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Let me talk about the metaphor of the cup for just a moment. It meant two things. First of all, the cup meant accepting what were its contents, what were the contents of the cup? Most theologians will argue with you that in a theological sense, what was in that cup was the wrath of God. In Jeremiah 25, 15, we read this in the Old Testament. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. Isaiah 51, 17, Jeremiah talks about the cup as being directed at Israel. Wake yourself up, wake yourself up, stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup of his wrath from the Lord's hand. The Bible speaks often of the wrath of God against our sin. Romans 1, 18, for instance, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Paul to the church at Ephesus says in chapter 5, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, this morning, I'm not going to talk about the wrath of God. We're going to talk about the wrath of God in the weeks to come, but I do believe the wrath of God is, is part of what's in that cup. But in that cup were some other things as well, and maybe they're in some way tied to the wrath of God, but in that cup were numerous painful experiences that Jesus would have to endure. When he talks about drinking the cup, some of the things that he would go through would be betrayal, abandonment, pain, torture, separation, humiliation, and then ultimately he would submit to death as death was in the cup. So we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about some of these experiences that were in the cup for Jesus. 
And then we're going to culminate on the last, uh, the last Sunday where we talk about the cup, if you would. I'm going to talk about the wrath of God and how the wrath of God was in that cup for Jesus to bear for all of us. But, uh, but for these few weeks that are coming, we're going to talk about what was in the cup in the way of experience for, for Jesus. Now, the second thing about the metaphor of the cup, the, the cup meant drinking its contents for Jesus, but it also meant yielding to the one who's giving it to him. It meant taking the cup from the one who's offering him the cup. And I want you to understand this morning that the cup, this is not the cup of the Jews. The Jews are not giving this cup to Jesus. The Romans are not giving this cup to Jesus. The world is not giving this cup to Jesus. Who's giving the cup to Jesus? The Father is, right? So Jesus said, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The person who gave this cup to Jesus to drink was God himself. God is extending this cup that's filled with pain and sorrow and ultimately the wrath of God. And taking the cup from the Father wasn't easy. Again, John doesn't record this, but the other Gospels do. You remember that he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and part of what he's doing while he's there is he's praying. And you remember what his prayer is, right? His prayer is, Father, I don't want to drink this cup. Is there any way for this cup to pass by me? Is there any way that I don't have to drink of this cup? If there is, Lord, please take this cup away. Three times he pleads that. But you remember his, his ultimate response, which is so wonderful, is that, Father, whatever your will is ultimately, that's what I'm willing to do. Even though I don't want to drink this cup, even though this cup is looming in front of me and is hard and it includes all these things that we're going to talk about, I don't really want to drink it, but God, your will be done. And the Bible says that his stress was such that the capillaries in his skin burst under the stress. And so that as he sweated, it seemed like he was sweating blood. Medically, they say that the stress ruptured his capillaries, and that's why it appeared that he was, he was bleeding in his, in his sweat. But don't you love it? He says, Father, I'm willing to, to drink the cup, whatever it means. And the proof of that, I, I love this too, the proof of that, it's one thing to say, Lord, I'm willing to do that, isn't it? It's one thing for us to say, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to die for you like Peter said, right? It's another when, it, when push comes to shove and you're in the middle of it. And Jesus is in the middle of it just a few hours, maybe even just less than a few hours from now. He'll be in the middle of it. Peter's swinging his sword, remember, to fight for Jesus. He swings his sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant. And Jesus says, no, man, put away your sword, Peter. And you remember what he says to him? He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has for me? So in other words, when the the rubber met the road, when was it this other idiom, push came to shove? I mean, he's willing to drink it, and drink it, he does. Now, what I'd like to talk about this morning, or what I'd like you to note this morning that is in the cup in the way of experience, is betrayal by a friend. Part of the cup that Jesus had to drink was that he was going to be betrayed by someone that he trusted, someone that I suggest to you that he loved, and, and even someone that, that I would, and again, I don't know this for a fact, but I would say that Jesus would have considered a friend at some level. He's betrayed by this person. Uh, er, he's not surprised by this. Early in the Gospel of John, we read, did I not myself choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? That very night when they were at the table, Jesus said to uh, said to him, hey, get up and go do what you've got to do. So, I mean, it's, it's, Jesus isn't surprised by this betrayal, but that doesn't make it easier, does it? I mean, just because I know somebody that I love is going to betray me, that doesn't make it 
That doesn't make it any easier to accept. And I suggest that this was a hard thing for Jesus uh, to accept. And I would suggest also that, that Judas would feel the guilt of this friendship that he's betrayed because just hours from now, after having done the deed, you'll remember that he goes out and kills himself be, because of it. Now, John's gospel makes it clear that Judas betrays Jesus, but his focus is different than the other gospels, as we'll talk about in just a second. But let me talk about John's focus. When, when, when Judas comes to betray Jesus, the focus in John's gospel is on what happens when they say, uh, when Jesus asks them, who are you seeking? And he says, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Here's what John's focus is. They take a step back and they fall down. And then they get back up, and uh, he says, who are you looking for? <laughs> I, I told, uh, I told the, the prayer group this morning, I think it was, I can't imagine the second go around after that just happened. I think I had a little fear and trepidation to say it a second time, right? Yeah, we're looking for Jesus, maybe, you know? But anyhow, uh, why does John record that for us? And again, I mean, I'm, I'm only speculating, why even did that happen? Why did that happen, that they took a step back and fell down? I mean, what was the point of that? And, and again, people have speculated. Here's my speculation. I think I, I'm agreeing with other folks. I, I think it was that Jesus was trying to show his disciples and even them, you're not taking my life. I'm giving you my life. You know, this is not because you have somehow a power over me. In fact, he would tell Peter, don't you know I get to call legions of angels. It's one thing to say that again. It's another thing to do it. Jesus makes them fall down in place. And I think John's trying to say to them, or Jesus is trying to say to them, John's recording it for us, that nobody took Jesus' life. He freely gave it. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. We're, we're all going to fall before Jesus. And, and again, I, I know this is, I don't really need to say this, but it's so much better to bow the knee to Jesus now as king than to bow the knee before him one day in force. But, but that's what the Bible says will happen. Now, the other disciples, I mean, the other, the other accounts of what happens here focus on a, a different aspect. Again, let me read you Matthew's, just so we get a broader picture of this betrayal. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, here's what Matthew records for us. He doesn't record the falling down. He records, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders and the people. But now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, hail rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said, friend, do you do what you have come for? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. In the other gospels, they focus on the fact that Judas' betrayal was by a kiss, now, if you're wondering why that would have been so, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, it was customary for the disciples to greet with a kiss. I mean, we're, I think we're the only culture in the world just about that doesn't greet with a kiss, all right? But um, they, they would have greeted that way. It would have been an honorary, respectable thing for him to do. But it's nighttime. It's nighttime. And if we assume there's not necessarily a full moon and you just have torches, how do you get, how do you know who Jesus is when some of those people may not have known him? I, I think the whole thing of Judas' betrayal with a kiss was so that they would, there would be no doubt who Jesus would because it'd be the one that Judas would kiss. 
You know, uh, Michael Card wrote a song years ago about this incident, and he said, and I quote his song, why, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain, and only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. After that, the kiss pandemonium breaks out. Peter pulls out his sword. You remember that, that uh, effort at courage? Again, I'm, I'm speculating on his motivation because, by the way, just a reminder, motivation is nothing we can ever judge, right? We can't judge people's motivation. But I, I have a feeling, you know, remember just, just hours earlier, Jesus said, you would deny me. And Peter said, no, I won't. Everybody else may die, uh, deny you, but I will. I'll die for you. I think maybe that's probably the motivation, but he pulls out the sword, cuts off Malchus' ear. Jesus heals him, tells him to put away that sword and that this is the cup that he has to drink. Warren Worsby suggests, had Jesus not heal, healed Mal, uh, Malchus's ear, Peter may have been the fourth, the fourth cross on that hill. Uh, that day. Here's a good question for us to, I guess, ask ourselves, speculate maybe. Why did Judas do it? Have you ever thought about that? I guess you probably have. If you followed Jesus any amount of time, you've probably wondered to yourself, why did Judas betray Jesus? Now, I remember as a, as a child, as a young Christian, I remember thinking, I know why. He, he denied him or he, he betrayed him because he wanted to force Messiah's hand. He's looking for them to overthrow Rome. He's a zealot. He really wants, he wants to force Jesus to overthrow Rome, and that's why, why he did it. But as I've grown over, older, I've, I've come to maybe another possible conclusion, and, and that is maybe he was just motivated by greed, just by greed. So John 12, 6 says this about Judas. But Judas did not care about the poor. He said uh, this, talking about how he was uh, upset about them spending money. He said this because he was a thief. He was the one who kept the money box, and he often stole from it. So I got to thinking, maybe it's really not anything as altruistic as wanting to force the Messiah's hand. Maybe it was just greed. And he thought 30 pieces of silver is a lot of money. Maybe, maybe I can get rich off of this. And you know, by the, way, when you're by the way, when you're motivated by greed, you do stupid things. So I read the story, and uh, the police in Wheeling, Illinois, they uh, arrested a Walmart cashier uh, for buying merchandise with the customer's cards that they had left behind. You know how we leave our credit card behind sometimes? She would take it, fill it out, and she'd buy merchandise on it. You know how they caught her? She would write her employee number on it because she wanted to get the employee discount. So sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes greed causes us to do some really stupid things, and maybe greed is what motivated Judas to do what he did. I guess we won't know, maybe on the other side in the kingdom, maybe God will speak to us about these things, but at this point, we don't really know what his motive was, but he betrayed his friend. He betrayed the Lord Jesus. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And Judas' kiss was the betrayal uh, of an enemy. It was the kiss of death for Jesus, and it was all for 30 pieces of silver. So really, that's the text, and that's, that's kind of our uh, explanation of the text, that you'd have a good picture of what's happening. But I'd like to take a few minutes before we leave this morning and talk personally, if you would, and practically about a subject that we see here in the cup that Jesus had to drink. And that is, that is the subject of betrayal, because Jesus isn't alone in being betrayed. Someone you thought close to you 
may have suddenly become your arch enemy. Maybe uh, someone has stabbed you in the back intentionally, emotionally. Maybe you've experienced extreme disappointment with someone you thought really highly of. For instance, maybe your spouse cheated on you. Or maybe you felt hurt by a child who defied your parental discipline and now blames you for their problems. Or perhaps a coworker has gossiped about you to your boss and, and you're on the outs or you're being fired. Or maybe a friend has, you loaned money to a friend and they haven't paid you back and now they avoid you and they ghost you on your phone. Or maybe it, uh, it was a relative that you trusted and they did unthinkable things to you. Maybe you have a Judas in your life. Now, if you have, can I talk to you about betrayal for just a few moments? I mean, again, I realize that this is, is a springboard from the betrayal that Jesus had to drink in that cup, but, but I, I think it's good for us to talk about this because so often it, it happens to us. And so what I'd like to do this morning as I conclude is just talk about betrayal, how I think Jesus uh, has dealt with betrayal. And in fact, I'm going I'm to jump a little bit ahead and talk about some of Peter, but I, you know, if, if Judas hadn't have destroyed himself, if he hadn't have killed himself, I believe that, that Jesus would have responded this way even to Judas. So let me give you, how, how do we respond when people betray us? So here's, here's the first thing I'd like to encourage you to do if you're ever betrayed, is stop and recognize that as intense as the pain is, you're not alone in being betrayed. You're not the first person to be betrayed. You're not the last person to be betrayed. And you might say, well, how does that help me because I was betrayed? I, th I think it does help us sometimes to recognize that because people are broken, because you and I are broken, we have a tendency to betray others and we have a tendency to be betrayed because we live in this broken world. You remember from the brokenness of Adam and Eve came the brokenness of Cain and Abel and Cain literally stabbed his brother in the back. Well, I mean, I don't know if he literally did, but he, but he killed him. And then Jesus is betrayed by Judas. It's, it's happening, and it has happened throughout the ages, and it will continue to happen. Now, here's one thing I want to acknowledge, that betrayal is personal, isn't it? If somebody betrays me, it's personal. They've betrayed, they've betrayed me. You can't betray me unless I have a certain level of trust with you, correct? And so it's personal. But again, the thing I want you to know when you are betrayed is that it's not unique. It's not unique. We're fallen, broken creatures. And unfortunately, people are going to hurt you. And people are going to betray you. And people are going to let you down. So when it happens, don't be surprised. And be prepared. Recognize it's something that I've got to deal with. Here's the second thing I want to suggest to us this morning to help us when we're betrayed. And that is to not allow the betrayal to lead to bitterness in our heart. To not allow anger and rancor and, and hatred. And again, I don't, I'm trying to think of another word for bitterness. Here, here's what Paul says about bitterness. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. When, when we are betrayed, there is a real desire to get revenge. I mean, it's part of it's part of our fallen DNA, I believe. There, there's a real desire to, get a to carry a grudge, to get payment back, and, and, and all too often we become bitter towards the person who betrayed us. What I love about Jesus, and this is what I want to suggest, is that he is forgiving. 
He's not bitter towards Judas. And you say, well, how do you know that? I know that because in just a few hours, when he's hanging on the cross, you know it too, what does he say while he's on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, is he, is he talking about everybody but Judas? I mean, I guess that's possible that he doesn't have Judas in mind. But, but, I, but I think he has, if I could be so bold, I think he has Judas in mind. And I think Jesus, I think it's very obvious that Jesus is not bitter in spite of all that he's having to go through. Maybe this morning you're, you're bitter because your Judas really hurt you. And you've not been able to relinquish that person. You've not been able to, to uh, somehow deal with that betrayal. The injustice, the pain of it is deep. The, the desire for rage or the rage that kind of is in you is always burning, never going away. And if you wouldn't get arrested, you'd really go pound that person into the ground. So I want to I give you three helps to, uh, to not become bitter. And again, these are nothing extraordinary. They're just things to remind us of. But, um, and again, I've already alluded to this. But if you are bitter, if you find yourself bitter towards somebody who's betrayed you, remember this. Chances are you have betrayed someone yourself in the past. And you say, oh, Jimmy, but I never betrayed someone like someone betrayed me and that's probably true. Maybe you haven't. But we tend to compartmentalize our betrayals, don't we? This is a bad betrayal. This was a not-so-bad betrayal. I'm in a not-so-bad betrayal category, so that's, there's something different between that. But how do you know if your not-so-bad betrayal wasn't a really big betrayal to the person that you betrayed, right? Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that we've all betrayed someone. I'm just simply saying that because of our brokenness and sin, when we're willing to acknowledge that, we're willing to realize that it's just as easy for me to betray someone as it is for me to be betrayed by someone. Here's the second thing I'd say. You know, when you're bitter, if you're bitter this morning, remind yourself of this truth. God has forgiven you. And if God has forgiven you, you should forgive others. Colossians 3.13 says, never hold grudges. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And I mean, we find this in the scripture over and over and over again, don't we? I mean, Jesus talks about it. The, the, the New Testament teachers like Paul and Peter, they talk about it. Everyone seems to talk about this. Why? Because it's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard to forgive when people have, have hurt us, but, but we need to remind ourselves God forgave us and he holds us as his followers to that same expectation. As I was going through my notes this morning and kind of preparing for, for right now, the thought hit me, Jimmy, you talk about this a lot. You talk about forgiving one another a lot. And you know, it's either a pet, pet subject of mine or it's because it's all, it's interwoven all throughout the scriptures. And I think, I think that's the reason, because forgiveness and forgiving others because God in Christ has forgiven us is, is, is always there, and that's why it comes up so much. And the third thing I would say to you, and you, you probably know this as well, but bitterness and resentment and anger and rage, the only person you're hurting is you. And I mean, I know that's, not, that's hard for us to, to believe because rage and bitterness it, in, in some kind of weird, wrong way, it makes us feel good to be bitter at someone. But the only person it's hurting 
is the person who has the bitterness. Comedian Buddy Hackett, some of us that are old, you young people won't even know who I'm talking about, but Buddy Hackett was a comedian. He starred in The Love Bug, just for you uh, older folks, right? But, but Buddy Hackett said this, and I, this is great. He said, I have a few arguments with people, but I never carry a grudge because while I'm carrying the grudge, they're out dancing. You know? Uh, Rick Warren said this about, about resentment and bitterness. He says, resentment always hurts the resenter and never the offender. Resentment cannot change the past or correct the problem. Now, I, you know, can I tell you something here just for a second? Uh, remember the video I told you all about the, the pro-life lady? She was talking about a, a woman she met, I think it was in Nicaragua or Guatemala, I can't remember for sure, but the woman had been raped by several men. She's pregnant. She goes to the doctor, and they're, they're wanting to abort the baby. And in the story, she, she asked the doctors this. She said, if I do the abortion, will it make the, the bad thoughts, and will it make all that go away? Will it make me forget the rape? And they said, no. And she said, well, then why should I, why should I kill uh, the child? Your resentment doesn't change the past. It doesn't correct the problem in any way. In fact, in, in, in Warren goes on to say, it does not even change the other person. It doesn't even hurt the other person. It only hurts you because the other person might not even know that you're bitter. Well, I guess, I guess we have a tendency, don't we, when we're bitter and angry towards someone to make sure they know? We have a tendency to do that, right? But unless, if the person's not somebody in your sphere of life, chances are you're not going to rub shoulders with them and they're not even going to know you're bitter towards them. Here's an illustration from the past. In 1880, James Garfield was elected president and about six months into his presidency, he was shot with a revolver in the back. And uh, of course, he didn't die from that. He was conscious the whole time and they went to the hospital and the doctor began to dig with his finger into the wound trying to get the bullet out. And they could not find the bullet. They kept digging, but they couldn't find the bullet. So he went back to Washington, D.C., to their hospitals. And again, they, they probed and they, they tried to find the bullet. They even called Alexander Graham Bell in, I'm not sure why, to try to find the, the bullet. Uh, he, hang, he hung on for the next two months, but uh, he died in August. I think he was shot in June. But you know what he died of? He didn't die of the bullet, didn't die of the wound. He died of their probing for the bullet and the infection that came in by simply always trying to get the bullet out. And I, it's a great illustration that sometimes the wounds of our betrayer, I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say they don't hurt, but what can be worse is us constantly reliving it and constantly being bitter and constantly trying to, to somehow deal with it rather than letting it go. Job 5.2 says, to worry yourself to death with resentment would be a foolish and senseless thing to do. The third suggestion I make to you is, number one, recognize you're not alone in this. And secondly, uh, don't let bitterness overtake you. Number three, pray for the person that's betrayed you. And I guess if the other is something that I do self-reflectedly, this is something I do proactively for the other person. And uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, we've quoted this here recently quite a bit. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. And that is tough to do, isn't it, when someone's hurt you? It's, I mean, you the, the last thing you feel like doing is praying for them and blessing them. I mean, you want to hurt them. 
right? You want to hurt them. But, but here's what I say, pray for them. John Turner says you pray for an enemy for 30 days, and at the end of 30 days, they probably won't be your enemy anymore. One preacher was preaching on this, uh, on forgiving your enemies, and he preached for a long time, and then he asked for a response, and he said, how many of you have enemies? And half the crowd raised their hand, so he thought he hadn't done a good enough job. He kept on preaching for another 10 or 15 minutes. And then he asked again, he said, uh, how many of you are willing to uh, get rid of your enemies, forgive your enemies? And, and everybody, uh, or was it, no, nobody raised their hand except for this one guy, he said. And he said, Mr. Jones, you're 86 years old. You mean to tell me you don't have any enemies to get rid of? And Mr. Jones says, I don't have any. And the guy said, really? How can you not have any enemies? Why don't you come up here and tell us how you don't have any enemies? And the guy comes up and he turns around and he says, I don't have any enemies because I outlived them all. So there's two strategies to dealing with our enemies. One is we can outlive them or two, we can actually do something proactive to forgive them and win them from being enemy to being something else. And I suggest to you that the proactive thing that we can do is we can begin to pray for our Judas every day. And I don't, I don't mean pray that God kills them. I mean pray that God blesses them, right? I mean, I've prayed that God would kill my enemies. Have you? I'm not proud of that. But we should pray not for God to kill our enemies, but for God to bless our enemies, for God to give them life, for God to change things. So if you happen to be here this morning, and this is a question for you, it's a personal introspective question, but if you have a Judas, can I ask you, have you, if you have somebody who's betrayed you, do you pray for that person? And how often do you pray for that person? And then the final thing, and then I'm finished, is uh, I would just encourage you to release the person who's betrayed you. Release them. Let them go. Don't, you know, some of us, maybe most of us, are always waiting for our Judas to come back and apologize. Especially when we take the initiative and we go and we apologize to someone and we, we seek restoration and we really want them to do the same back but they don't. But forgiveness is whether they do or not. It's, it's really not about them. It's really about you and me. And uh, so, so, sometimes we can't even sit down and talk to the person who's been our Judas, the person who's betrayed us, right? We can't even sit down and talk to them. So this, is a, this step that I'm talking about here, about you releasing your offender, it really involves just you. It's just you. It's just you and God, releasing that person, releasing that bitterness, releasing them, and letting God take care of them. That's between you and God. In Mark chapter 18, Jesus' disciples ask him how many times they should forgive uh, sins. Remember, Jesus said you should forgive uh, not seven times, but 70 times seven. What Jesus meant is this, that seeking to release them, I, I think this is what he meant anyway, that it's not just, it's not always a one-time deal, right? It's not always, I pray and then it's gone, right? No, it's, I kind of have to do it over and over and over again. And we tend to read Jesus saying, well, if they do 70 different offenses or, or, or 490 different offenses, I need to forgive them 490 times. And I'm sure Jesus probably has that in mind. But maybe he also has in mind that it takes 490 times sometimes to really release somebody and forgive them. I forgive them today, but I take it back up tomorrow. And I forgive them tomorrow, but I take it back up the following day. Maybe Jesus is saying, hey, this needs to be an ongoing attitude of forgiveness. You know, and it's between you and the Lord. It really has nothing to do with them. It's, it's you actually, can you trust God? 
Can you trust God to deal with their wrong? Even as I hope you trust God to deal with your wrong, right? Can you trust God to deal with their wrong? Now, I don't know. I, don't, I need to go ahead and finish, but there's a, a couple of things, and these are kind of maybe... I don't know what you call these things, but I got two suggestions. If you happen to be here this morning and you've tried and you just can't seem to get over bitterness, you can't seem to release them. I mean, here's, here's a couple of, maybe you're going to call these strange exercises, but, but here's something that I've actually done before and it's helped me, so I want to encourage you. Um, one is the, I guess, counselors call this the empty chair thing or empty chair technique. And that is that you pull up a chair and you put the person who betrayed you or the person that you're having a hard time releasing in, in one chair and you sit in the other. No, they're not really in the chair. They're just there, right? And then you talk to them. And you tell them what's on your heart. You tell them how you feel. You tell them and then, then you tell them, and I'm releasing you and I'm letting you go. And you forgive them. And I mean, you're not saying that to them personally. That way you don't have to do any kind of back and forth. You're, you're just dealing with your own forgiveness. And if that's too weird, write a letter. I can't say, I don't know if I've done the chair thing, but I have done the letter thing where you write out a letter doing the same thing. Just write out your feelings on the letter about, about how you feel, how it hurt, you know, and write in your letter about how you want to forgive them and you are forgiving them. And then at the end, destroy the letter. Don't mail it. I'd suggest don't mail it. It's about you trusting God. It's about you being willing to trust God with the person who's, who's let you down. You know, uh, in Job eleven thirteen, we read this. Put your heart right, reach out to God, then face the world again, firm and courageous. Then all your troubles will fade from your memory like floods that are past and remembered no more. Now, I can't say for a fact Judas went out and destroyed himself, killed himself. And um, so I don't know how Jesus would have treated Judas. But if you take... Peter's denial as betrayal, I mean, Jesus forgave Peter. He went after Peter. He didn't hold it against Peter. He wasn't bitter towards Peter. And I suggest to you, this is how the Lord wants us to be. Jesus drank the cup that he began. He, he's drinking the cup in the text that we're going to be reading. He's drinking the cup. The hour has come. He's drinking the cup that God has placed before him. And part of that meant betrayal. So would you bow your heads and let me just ask you privately between you and the Lord, do you share Jesus' experience where you're, someone has betrayed you? And maybe you've let the betrayal go. Maybe you've been able to do everything I've suggested this morning and you no longer harbor bitterness. You pray for the one who's betrayed you. You've forgiven them. Uh, maybe that's not where you are, but maybe if you happen to be there this morning, this is your opportunity to face that head on. And I'm asking you, are you willing today to trust the Lord to help you release that person? For, for him to take care of them and for you to be free of that. Would you be willing to be free of that today? You can. Again, it might be you have to be free of it today and then release it tomorrow and release it the next day, but, but you can be free if you are willing we saying the Lord has broken the chains. He set us free. He can set you free of this. And just, I'm going to be quiet in just a second, give you 30 seconds to a minute to just think in your heart. But one more thing. Remember this. Remember Jesus in the future if you're betrayed. Father, help us to be quick to forgive others as you have forgiven us. And Father, help us to be quick to seek forgiveness when we stumble and we hurt others. 
Father, help us to release all bitterness and unforgiveness and instead embrace kindness and blessing towards one another and even towards those who yet do not know you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.